The Clean Power Hour is brought to you by CPS America, the maker of North America's number one three-phase string inverter. With over six gigawatts shipped in the U.S., the CPS America product lineup includes three-phase string inverters ranging from 25 to 275 kW. Their flagship inverter, the CPS 250-275, is designed to work with solar plants ranging from 2 megawatts to 2 gigawatts. The 250-275 pairs well with CPS America's exceptional data communication, controls, and energy storage solutions. Go to chintpowersystems.com to find out more. Um, one area that I think, especially since we are talking about contractors, um, you know, a couple of areas to really kind of pay attention to are, are going to be certainly with the eligibility for grading um, certain rebate programs together. This has a huge opportunity to make your business highly, highly competitive, especially if you figure this out and somebody else doesn't. Things like um, WAP, the Weatherization Assistance Program, REAP um, for rural communities. WAP specifically, like coupling that with HERA opens up the avenue to be able to work with low-income communities in a way that doesn't make a ton of sense um, with, with HERA only. Are you speeding the energy transition? Here at the Clean Power Hour, our hosts Tim Montague and John Weaver bring you the best in solar, batteries, and clean technologies every week. Want to go deeper into decarbonization? We do too. We're here to help you understand and command the commercial, residential, and utility solar, wind, and storage industries. So let's get to it. Together we can speed the energy transition. Today on the Clean Power Hour, implementing the IRA, what energy professionals need to know. You know, the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022 is a major shot in the arm. It includes $400 billion of incentives for the energy transition, and that's a wonderful thing. But implementing it is a, is, is another matter entirely. So I'm going to be doing a series this year on implementing the IRA. And today we're joined by Jamie Score, founder and CEO of Luna Energy when we're going to break down what energy professionals need to know about the IRA. Welcome to the show, Jamie. Thanks for having me. Uh, This is a really interesting time for us to be diving in this topic. So, so happy to share some experience and uh, hopefully it's helpful for everybody. You know, in my, in my preparation for this, I was just reviewing some of the stories from this year about the IRA. One of the standouts is that this has now spurred the expansion or development of over a hundred factories, including solar panels, batteries, electric vehicles, and racking products like torque tubes for large-scale solar. So, I mean, this is really a huge industrial policy for the United States. And it's not a question of if we're going to make the energy transition. It's a question of when, how fast are we going to make the energy transition and will we do it fast enough to save our butts? So give our listeners a little bit of background on yourself, Jamie. How did you get interested in the built environment and energy? Yeah, I'll definitely get some context there. Uh, also, just to kind of even layer on to the point that you just made as far as um, factories and it, it being a matter of of when, not if, you know, a handful of areas that are really exciting right now, in addition to you know these factories that are being built, is also the amount of grant money that the federal government set aside for the deployment of new technology, like heat pumps, um, like virtual power plants, storage, things like that, that are actually opening up the scope for new players to come into the market with new solutions that weren't there. So I think the exciting part right now is that it's not even just an if or a when, but we're actually now starting to get in the conversation of how are we going to deploy this and what is this going to look like? 
Um, and so that I think makes it an especially exciting time for us to be talking about this. Well said. Um, but you're asking me about my background specifically. I've been in the clean energy industry for about a decade now. Really, have just kind of had an opportunity to see the the industry grow and mature um, from a number of different perspectives. Um, really started off at, in the startup space, working in the built environment, retrofits, energy efficiency, um, and had the benefit of that taking me throughout the entire West Coast, Washington, Oregon, Idaho, Northern California, Southern California, um, and just seeing from the ground level uh, what it takes for consumers to adopt these types of technology solutions, what it takes for, for contractors to install them, um, how businesses need to grow and adapt to these environments and these incentives. Um, so it, it's been a great ride and positioned me really well to, to offer some insight on kind of where we're at now. It's kind of the best of times and the worst of times for some solar professionals because in 2023, where here we are recording in December of 2023, residential solar had a rough year. Um, when when you look at places like California, there's a major decline in residential solar for a variety of reasons. Part of it is inflation. So interest rates went up. So consumers are less inspired to borrow money to do a solar project and net metering rules changed. We, we got NEM 3.0, which devalues solar electrons by 75% or more. And, and so what's happening is residential solar companies are having to innovate their way and grab onto a bridge to the next version of themselves, which certainly include includes batteries, but probably also EV infrastructure, heat pumps, um, heat pump furnaces and electrification of everything, so to speak. So what else or where should we start when you think about, you know, my audience, energy professionals, this includes residential, commercial, utility, solar developers and installers, and then service providers like financiers, and then ultimately the folks that also make the equipment, the OEMs. But when you think about my audience of energy professionals, what is the conversation that you want to have about the IRA and implementing it? I think there's a lot of directions to go with that one. Um, to me, I look at, so I've been following the IRA since Build Back Better um, when, when the president was trying to get elected on the platform. And to me, when I was looking at it and realizing the, the scope and breadth of, of the bill and what they were trying to accomplish with it, I realized there was a game changer on the way that we were conducting and doing business um, in, in the energy market. You know, for a long time, I feel like the challenge that we've had is as an industry is that we've always been capped by this this efficiency conversation. Like we can only get the market to make an investment or, or do a solution up to the level that we can give them a cheaper alternative than them just continuing to pay a utility bill. What I find interesting about where we are with the current funding and grants and rebates and incentives is that it really allows for us to open the conversation up and do a lot more than what we were doing in the past. I think this is actually a real uniquely point uh, point that's uniquely illustrated in California specifically. So we talked about kind of the extra challenges in the market right now um, with the implementation of NEM3, which happened in the last April. From April to now, um, they're projecting something about 17,000 lost jobs in the California market. By the time we get to April, June of next year, that number could be as high as 23, 25,000 um, jobs that have been lost. And so what I think we're seeing in California is this kind of acceleration of an issue that we're going to see across the nation where the ability to just focus on one individual service isn't going to cut it anymore. Um, with how the incentive structure is set up, 
those are not going to be the jobs that are going to get the most amount of incentive dollars. And also with how consumers are looking at the space and and looking for more value impact with the money that they're investing, they're going to want more done for the dollars that that, that they're putting into a project. Um, And the IRA has really opened up the ability to have that conversation, um, whether as a builder looking at 45L or 179D um, and some of the extra funds that are there, or whether that is working with a homeowner in a retrofit and we're talking about tax credits with 25C, 25D, um, Hira Homes. Um, or even like the ability to braid in some of these existing programs like WAP and REAP, um, it it drastically opens up the conversation to where now we're not just talking about energy efficiency. You know, we're talking about building longevity, decarbonization. We're talking about smart functions, um, and so that I think is where we're going to see the industry move, and that's that's really where the uh, where the opportunities are going to be. So, as solar installers have become solar and storage professionals, I mean. Truly, if you're a solar professional, you have to see yourself as a solar and battery professional at the very least. Now, there is this. there are additional incentives, basically market forces that are asking you as an installer or developer to consider expanding that portfolio. But let's talk about, you know, for example, distributed generation, rooftop solar and batteries. These projects reduce your energy bill, and then there's a stack of value depending on the market. Maybe there's a battery incentive, a cash incentive, um, ways to monetize that infrastructure, so to speak. And we have things like the investment tax credit. Okay, we have a 30% in ITC, up to 60% depending on the market and the equipment used, right? There's incentives for energy communities. There's incentives for Made in America equipment and for low and middle income communities. But if you're an installer doing distributed generation projects today, and then trying to figure out where I need to go, where do I need to sharpen my saw? What are the types of services I need to offer? There's some obvious places to go, but, uh, for, but, but they need ideas, I think. So what are those places and, and why is, the market pushing this transition, so to speak. So this is a very nuanced conversation. And this is actually what's making right now really exciting because we're we're getting away from just the the awareness of, oh, there's the the IRA that's out there. We're we're maturing from the conversation of I'm gonna implement the IRA. Here's kind of the positives and the negatives for my business. And now we're getting more into deployment and really figuring out the nuance and detail. Uh, to me, I think the nuance and detail is the most important part. So sometimes we have contractors that are, hey, I've heard of this new heat pump incentive. I'm going to build my business around the heat pump incentive. There's actually a lot more to it than that, um, especially as we kind of look and break down these different pro- uh, different tiers of incentives that are available. And they're not evenly distributed as far as what the, what the value or uh, potential is for them. As an example, let's say that I am a residential contractor. Um, and I'm doing commercial projects. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm doing solar projects with storage, right? Okay, I need to make my business more competitive um, moving into the future, especially as the interest rates are higher. Um, I need to be able to deliver more impact, offset more of the project costs with these incentives. What we're going to decide to focus on is going to have a lot to do with the location of your company. So when we look at, for instance, like the uh, the state rebates, Hero, WAP, we have three different tiers of customers. 
We have below 80% of median income. We have 80 to 130% of median income. We have over 130% of median income. And each of those buckets is going to determine how much money someone's able to get and what what we're going to do on a particular project based on who it is that they're actually uh, going after to try to serve. A residential commercial solar, I'm sorry, a residential um, solar installer, like their strategy for someone in the tax credit only incentive bucket is going to be radically different than someone that's in the low income below 8% threshold. And we really want to start aligning our strategies and what we're doing around that specifically uh, to determine you know, how we're going to jump into this. So let's say California, for instance, first thing I'm going to do is an audit, right? We know that California, I believe, is eligible for something like 280 or $300 million. Okay, so we want to get an idea how many households uh, are we going to get with that available funding before that depletes. And then we want to know, all right, in our particular zone of where we're working, whatever our, our zip code or radius is, like what percentage of people do we have that actually fit that template? Like who can actually get access to? Because for some of these incentives, like if we're talking about the federal credits, those are locked in. If we're talking about state rebates, that's based on a certain fund of money, in which case, once that funding runs out, that, that program is not going to be active until it, it's refunded. So kind of understanding the specifics of, of someone's actual market, I think is really, really, really important right now um, because there are a lot, of, a lot of developers, a lot of builders, a lot of contractors that are actually leaping without looking. Um, if rebates and incentives sound good up front, but if they're just not widely available in our area, um, you know, that can create some, some issues downstream. So I get that. And I mean, solar is largely a local or regional phenomenon. If you're a solar installer, you've got a service area. There are some national players, but for the most part, solar installers are regional operators. Let's say Southern California or San Diego. And okay, historically, maybe they were focused more on upper uh, income, uh, an upper income demographic, right? Family, uh, I mean, single family homeowners who could afford to install a twenty-five to forty thousand dollar infrastructure project on their home. Now, as you know, <laughs> as rates have gone up, and those projects are are dying on the vine as rates went up and M3.0 was implemented. Okay. Now there's incentives for low and middle income that installers need to really drill down on and understand because that can sweeten a deal. Is that what you're suggesting? Depending upon where they're located? Yes. hundred percent. So if I'm looking at it and I'm a, and let's say I'm in Southern California, so that's where I'm at right now. So if I'm a solar contractor, one, I am the best position out of virtually all the trades to be able to take point on an energy position, right? Uh, because with a driving force behind a lot of the uh, a lot of the financing that is available is actually solar. So we have the ability as solar contractors to be able to extend the financing to an entire project. Now, once I'm working with a homeowner for an issue, let's just solve more problems while we're on site, right? If we understand the fact that the signaling from you know, these three bills between BIL, CHIPS, and IRA, that $1.2 trillion of investment is about switching us over from gas and carbon fuels into, into electric and renewables. Well, I mean, there's something like 174, 124 million people that need to switch from gas to electric. And again, we were just saying that's not if, that's a when. So how do we now take our business to support, um, you know, over that, over that longer duration of time, realizing that all these people are going to participate? 
when we're looking at it, why do people even come to a solar um, contract to begin with? Largely, they're looking to, to save on their utility bills. Right. Why are they looking to save on utility bills? Their home's probably inefficient and their bills are above average in, in, in the amount that they're paying. So they're coming with this pain of high bills without understanding why high bills. And it's like, well, your building actually is just not performing at the level that it should. If your building is not performing at the level it should, there's probably other issues that you're experiencing, whether that's in the efficiency performance of the HVAC system, whether that's in ventilation and airflow weatherization, uh, um, whether that's in your ability to monitor and respond to, to your home, like all of that becomes part of the conversation. I think this is kind of a big deal, Jamie, because, you know, solar equipment is pretty simple. You've got solar modules, racking, inverters, it's electricity, it plugs into the panel. Yeah, maybe you need to upgrade the panel. Okay, it's more complicated with solar and batteries. But when you start talking about, you know, building envelope and HVAC, boy, that's a whole other thing. And it's not that people can't learn that stuff, but it, how does this play out? Because, I mean, let's face it, a lot of these solar companies are very specialized and and now they're having to become more generalist. So do you see this happening through just training or are they going to do mergers and acquisitions or some combination thereof? It could be a combination. Um, right now, what we're really finding is that there is no there is no one size fits all approach. Um, again, a lot of this stuff is very, very market specific. Right. What do you even have access to? Um, and that's regardless of the scale of the project, we could even be talking about you to scale of the microgrids, like what workers do you have available? Like a lot of these things start to become part of the conversation. Um, for the solar industry as a whole, we've just seen regardless of where you're at, you have to have multiple avenues of value that you're providing to the end consumer. Otherwise, changes in regulations, changes in the market, put large percentages of these companies out of business. So to me, there's kind of an, an adapt or die function to this, right? Um, even aside from the marketing changes and challenges that are taking place, it's also just the amount of money that's being given out, um, especially in the consumer space. Like if we are heading into a more challenging economic environment where rates and everything are still high, um, as a person who's been in this for over a decade and has been in um, the industry when we've had good economic times, bad economic times, incentives and non-incentives, when we're in those challenging times, people buy on value. And so what kind of value is, is it that you can deliver? Um, certainly as we see more extreme weather events, but last year we had, we set the record for most billion dollar events um, for extreme weather in the US. Um, I think it was something like 50, over $50 billion that we had in, in, um, in damage from extreme weather. These are the things that consumers are thinking about. And so can we come to the table with more solutions than just, you're gonna have a lower bill than the utility company, um, than what you would have with the utility company into, well, what's your air quality like when there's a wildfire? What's your resiliency plan for if power were to go out or if there was a natural disaster? Is your home set up for extreme weather events? There's a really interesting study going out right now on um, the changing in dew points um, throughout the entire nation because of the changing climate and how that's actually impacting things like mold and mildew growth um, inside of buildings. So we have a whole new wave that we're going to have to address here with ventilation, airflow, home health, um, and so there's a lot of potential for us to, to open up this conversation. The Clean Power Hour is brought to you by CPS America. 
the maker of North America's number one three-phase string inverter, with over six gigawatts shipped in the U.S. The CPS America product lineup includes three-phase string inverters ranging from 25 to 275 kW. Their flagship inverter, the CPS 250-275, is designed to work with solar plants ranging from 2 megawatts to 2 gigawatts. The 250-275 pairs well with CPS America's exceptional data communication, controls, and energy storage solutions. Go to chintpowersystems.com to find out more. Yeah, you know, I I work with a solar company in Northern Illinois, a company called Greenlink, who their bread and butter is doing, for example, upgrades to multifamily facilities, improving the insulation and the envelope tightness in multifamily buildings. And the incentives from the IRA and the state of Illinois, there's there's incentives in, in both at the federal and state level, basically pay for these upgrades for the facility owner. The facility owner isn't paying anything. And yet, the installer has a line of business doing these installations. And then there's separate, you know, incentives for solar. And historically, tackling multifamily with solar has been challenging, right? Because the tenants are paying the electricity bill. And and the and so the building owner isn't incentivized to install solar on that apartment building, uh, you know, to attack the the loads of of their tenants. Now we do have uh, services like Energy 311, which allows the landlord to become the energy company for their tenants. And this is allowed in, I don't know, a handful of markets, around 16 to 20 markets across the U.S., including Illinois. I think California is in that category. Colorado's in that category. Um, and this is, you know, opening up the multifamily and the warehouse uh, markets. This is, you know, 90% of commercial real estate is third-party owned real estate, meaning the tenant, the company occupying the real estate is not the owner of the facility. And so if we can find ways to incentivize facility owners of multifamily and warehouses, we want to do that. And that and that is happening. So reach out to me if you don't know about these uh, these opportunities and these ways of skinning that cat, so to speak. But back to our question, Jamie, you know, how to implement the IRA or how to take advantage of the IRA. There's kind of, we've touched on some kind of long-term planning strategies. Okay. Yeah. You, it's no longer enough to just be a solar or solar and battery company. And that's a great theme. I love that theme. And that's certainly a drum that I beat with my clients. But when you think about, you know, just the short-term 2024 to 2025 residential and commercial solar companies, you know, that's, I'm kind of still hearkening back to, it's a heavy lift to just bolt on these additional services. Um, Certainly over time, they're going to be able to do that. I guess one alternative is to consider moving to other markets. Like, you you mentioned the California crisis and 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 you know these resi companies are shrinking and 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 shedding labor. Well, those people are going to go somewhere. They're going to go where the opportunity is, and there's good opportunities in other markets. California is certainly leading the way with the future of net of net metering, and we have to be vigilant. But there are plenty of other places where those people are needed, for one thing. Um, 
but you know, how do you see this unfolding? And 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 I, I guess what do installers need to be thinking about in your mind in the near term? I'll start off first with uh, I think California is the best opportunity in the market right now um, because the the reshuffling I think has literally put an explanation point on the fact that business as usual and the way that we were doing it is not going to be the most profitable way moving forward. And I think that even though this is a, a very painful environment for a lot of solar operators and companies out there, the the back end opportunity in every which way it is that I've been able to measure this and look at it is significantly higher than it would be if we were still on M2. So I would say first step for a lot of contractors is actually just open themselves up to that possibility. There's a lot of people that are still kind of stuck in that in the past of like, hey, this is just the tough situation that I'm experiencing right now. Um, but once you get through that and start looking at what's going on in electrification and decarbonization, you realize that the ceiling is so much higher now and the floor is also higher too. Um, I think what we're going to really see here over the next kind of 12, 24 months um, we're going to see really a lot of the people that are making quick move or that are moving acceleratedly. We're going to see them get really big returns here um, in the first 12, 24 months um, coming through 24 and 25. Um, we're going to see them take, we're going to start to see the rise of what I'm going to call electrification brands, <clears throat> whole companies it is that people go to to solve their electrification solutions um, and help them navigate the energy transition. The markets changed so much because of this legislation. Not even just the amount of funds that are available, which in itself is, is staggering at 1.2 trillion. Also, you just have the amount of time. The fact that we're, we've got, well, they say it's 10 years, but realistically, this is all aligned to us hitting our ICC, IPCC uh, climate targets. So until we hit those, those targets, this funding is locked in. So we have a really long runway here. And just these three bills are not done. Like It's already acknowledged within the market that more money is going to be needed in order for us to continue to hit these goals. So the runway, the ceiling, the floor, all of that is much higher now than it was before the IRA, even if there's some market pain that's going on. To me, that's now where we get to start talking about long-term vision and what this is going to look like as we move into the future. So for right now, how can contract solar contractors immediately um, start to make the pivot? You've got to know about the IRA and you've got to know about the landscape of, of the energy transition and where it is that we're going to. That's period. Because at the end of the day, what you're really going to be getting paid for, what your company is going to exist for is to help to make that transition um, into these new energy services more efficient. That's that's going to be the reasoning for being there. How we do it is going to change and mature as we go through different technologies coming online um, and a different adoption. All of that remains to be seen. But fundamentally, what we're going to be doing is helping to accelerate that transition. I think there's some really cool places where we're going to be able to um, kind of lead the conversation going forward. So um, I did a, I actually wrote a kind of an article on this on, on LinkedIn not too long ago, talking about the emergent of new technologies like um, ESA, energy storage appliances. So what we're seeing now, uh, manufacturers, suppliers actually start to integrate uh, energy storage into major appliances. So stoves are kind, of, induction stoves are kind of that first wave. Um, but you know, my argument is in the next you know 24, 36 months, we might we'll probably see that shift into heat pumps, um, dryers, heat pump water heaters. And now imagine you've got three to seven appliances in your house, all with three to eight kilowatt storage. You don't need to make a, an investment in a home battery storage anymore. And when you factor that on with things like energy management systems, virtual power plants, and the ability to start transacting energy. 
now I think we have a whole few, a new future for, for how energy usage looks that is something that we can bring to the market that's exciting and, and gets people wanting to buy it. Okay. Uh, energy storage appliances make sense on some level. I, I think there's a major double edge there, which is things get expensive when you start adding batteries to them. Yes, in 10 years, everyone's going to have a battery in their garage or built into some other appliance in their home. Okay. But if you're, if you're a contractor, how do you strategically kind of approach this problem of where's the best way to segue into, because I see this as kind of, there's a fork here of, okay, installing heat pumps and, uh, you know, electric stoves. Okay, fine. That's one niche. Installing electrification appliances or EV infrastructure and electrification. That's cool. But then there's the envelope and that's a whole other thing. You know, um, insulation, the tightness of the envelope, ventilation systems, windows and doors. That's a whole other thing. Is there an obvious stepstone approach to this? Like, yeah, go after heat pumps first and then get into building upgrades or is it a both and? No, actually to your point, the way that you just structured that is how I'm talking to, to the uh, contractors about it, where it's not, don't just come in and say, Hey, we're going to do a heat pump because that's where the incentive is. No, let's use the market that you're operating in to dictate how it is that we're going to deploy in that market. So, I mean, and there's a lot of moving pieces with that. So on the supply side, like right now we're seeing manufacturing go through a whole shift with the new regulations on refrigerants, uh, with the new efficiency measures. And I mean, there's right now for companies that have already started to make investments for trying to align their business around the IRA in 23, there's a lot of instances where equipment that qualified in 23 isn't going to qualify in 24. All right. So we're needing to figure out, you know, resupply and everything as well to be able to, to kind of address these things. To me, when I'm breaking it down for people, I'm looking at um, what markets are we operating in? What are the income levels of those markets? That way we have an idea of how much um, how much incentive money is going to be available in the market that we're work working in. I don't want to deploy a low income strategy in a market where everybody's affluent and everybody's over median income, right? Like that's not going to make a ton of sense. The equipment that we're using for low income might not be the same that we're using for a tax credit only uh, customer. So there's some nuance into looking at like, what's the specific market? Where do we have a competitive advantage? In some cases, you know, if you look at the current distribution of funds for the IRA and where's money going, a lot of it's not going to the places that we would naturally assume. Like most of it's been disproportionately allocated um, in rural communities in the Midwest, et cetera. And that's actually because of the braiding aspect that's involved, involved with the IRA, the ability to combine these incentives some of the best opportunities are actually out in these rural markets, which is why we're seeing that kind of first tranche of funds going there. Um, so all that to really say that it is a bit of a unique um, answer for, for each individual company. Um, and, you know, they do want to talk to people that are not just educated in the IRA, but actually know what's going on in the market overall. So that we can talk about like your unique standpoint in it and where it is that, that your company has the opportunity to thrive. Um, but overall, I would say let's focus on which market, it is that we want to address as far as you know kind of income level um and then what can we do within those each uh each of those particular tiers um to, to best position the business and one last piece that i'll add to that is 
what makes things really exciting right now, if you think about the, the solar contractor model, the HVAC contractor model, it was largely built on you sell an item once and then you don't talk to that homeowner again for another five, 10 plus years. This is completely different where Luna, when we're, we're doing home improvement projects, this is a three, five year strategy. So we're coming through with, here's your recommendations for weatherization airflow, getting your, your smart systems in year one, year two, we're coming back to address things like heat pump, water heater, maybe sciences. Year three, we're looking at wiring. We're looking at weatherization. Um, so you can start to structure a lot of these deals um, very differently, too. I would point my listeners to episode 151 from earlier this year with Jeff Coleman. The title of that show is Digital Infrastructure for Decarbonizing the Built Environment. Jeff is developing a platform called Eli. Eli.build is the URL. And this is a platform that utilities primarily and jurisdictions can embrace. And then it allows business owners, consumers, and contractors to uh, be able to quickly identify, well, in any particular zip code, what are the incentives going on? What are the incentives and programs? This is a major challenge. Um, so I'm, I'm a huge fan of these digital platforms. I don't know if you know, Jamie, of others that are doing this. But that's kind of where we need to go here to make it easier for consumers and installers in my mind. Yeah, I would say a, a large portion of the conversations that I'm having right now are with startups um, that are coming up with solutions for the space. Uh, uh, you know, those solutions depending upon, you know, whether we're talking to contractors, builders, developers. Um, I would say at the, the developer level, um, a lot of the conversations have been driven around um, legal compliance, you know, especially with the transfer of these credits which in cases, some cases can be millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars, um, just really making sure that the deal is set up to be able to protect everybody. Um, now we're kind of moving a little bit into the insurance aspect of it and just figuring out where the, where the edges of the liability are, depending upon the project. Um, but, you know, really the, the biggest area that, that people are having the most anxiety around is the compliance aspect. So, you know, how do we manage this on a, on a daily, monthly um, annual basis to make sure that we're within compliance and protecting ourselves from, from the clawback nature of some of these incentives too. Um, one area that I think, especially since we are talking about contractors, um, you know, a couple of areas to really kind of pay attention to are, are going to be certainly with the eligibility for braiding um, certain rebate programs together. This has a huge opportunity to make your business highly, highly competitive, especially if you figure this out and somebody else doesn't. Things like um, WAP, the Weatherization Assistance Program, REAP, um, for rural communities, WAP specifically, like coupling that with HERA opens up the avenue to be able to work with low-income communities in a way that doesn't make a ton of sense um, with, with HERA only. Um, making sure that we understand not only what the legislation says right now, but also like what are the realities of what this may look like in the future as it deploys, really talking about this in the kind of next 12 and 24 months. There's some aspects there that are not defined yet that are being, um, you know, kind of developed at the state level that are really, really important to make sure the contractors understand. One, the funding and cap limits on the state rebates, really, really important for you to make sure that you know that because you redesign your entire business around state rebates that in a lot of cases will only fund about 1% of eligible projects before it's out. And you're banking on that two, three, four years in the future, you know, you, you could be doing yourself a disservice or putting yourself in a tough position. Um, understanding some aspects of like the homes rebate, the, the aggregation market that's being created out of that, um, and the liabilities and 
potentials for clawbacks that are, are potentially very similar in the state as they are to the federal credit, this is going to be another really, really important area for, for contractors to make sure that they understand. So uh, I just want to put a couple of those areas out there is, um, you know, just kind of pulse check, temperature check. Um, but, you know, make sure that you're having conversations about this with with people that are integrated in the market on the on the compliance and deployment side for the IRA, just to make sure you're protected. All right. Well, we're going to end there. I want to thank Jamie Score for coming on the show. Please check out all of our content at cleanpowerhour.com. Give us a rating and a review on Apple or Spotify. And please tell a friend about the show. There are many, many energy professionals or aspiring energy professionals who don't know about the Clean Power Hour. Reach out to me on LinkedIn or at the website. And Jamie, how can our listeners find you? Yeah, you can find me on uh, LinkedIn. Um, I try to make sure that I share kind of updates based on conversations that, are, that, are, that I'm having and going on throughout the space. Um, you can email me directly as well, jamie at lunaenergy.co. Also, I'll have some, uh, some events coming up with uh, Rewiring America, Clean Energy for America. Uh, we'll be uh, jumping into webinars to, to explore some of these conversations and topics in more depth, too. Very good. Well, thank you so much. I'm Tim Montague. Let's grow solar and storage. Hey, listeners. This is Tim. I want to give a shout out to all of you. I do this for you twice a week. Thank you for being here. Thank you for giving us your time. I really appreciate you and what you're all about. Uh, You are part and parcel of the energy transition, whether you're an energy professional today or an aspiring energy professional. So thank you. I want to let you know that the Clean Power Hour has launched a listener survey, and it would mean so much to me if you would go to cleanpowerhour.com, click on the About Us link right there on the main navigation that takes you to the About page, and you'll see a big graphic, Listener Survey. Just click on that graphic, and it takes just a couple of minutes If you fill out the survey, I will send you a lovely baseball cap with our logo on it. The other thing I want our listeners to know is that this podcast is made possible by corporate sponsors. We have Chin Power Systems, the leading three-phase string inverter manufacturer in North America. So check out CPS America. But we are very actively looking for additional support to make this show work. And you see here our media kit with all the sponsor benefits and statistics about the show. You know, we're dropping two episodes a week. We have now over 320,000 downloads on YouTube, and we're getting about 45,000 downloads per month. So this is a great way to bring your brand to our listeners. And our listeners are decision makers in clean energy. This includes project executives, engineers, finance, project management, and many other professionals who are making decisions about and developing, designing, installing, and making possible clean energy projects. So check out cleanpowerhour.com both our listener survey on the About Us and our media kit and become a sponsor today. Thank you so much. Let's grow solar and storage. The Clean Power Hour is brought to you by CPS America, the maker of North America's number one three-phase string inverter. With over six gigawatts shipped in the U.S., the CPS America product lineup includes three-phase string inverters ranging from 25 to 275 kW. 
Their flagship inverter, the CPS 250-275, is designed to work with solar plants ranging from 2 megawatts to 2 gigawatts. The 250-275 pairs well with CPS America's exceptional data communication, controls, and energy storage solutions. Go to chintpowersystems.com to find out more.